We are continuing through the book of Luke. One of the great things about going through a book, you get to pick up context. You get to see what God is doing, not just pulling a verse out here or there, but you get into the flow. You get into the actual world in which these events occur. The passage we're looking at, the, the section that we are observing, is a fairly large section, and what it's talking about, this is the response to the ministry of Jesus at the end of his ministry. He's been now publicly ministering to the nation of Israel for three and almost three and a half years. He is weeks away from the cross. He has departed from the Galilean ministry. He has departed from them, basically, Woe unto you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, right? He has departed from them and is now making his way to Jerusalem. He's continuing to travel around. He's, he's not settling into one place, nor does he pretty much through his old ministry. Even the Galilean region is a fairly large reason. And, uh, region. And so he's now traveling to Jerusalem. He's going various places around Jerusalem. And he's come to this account here where there was a demon-possessed guy who couldn't speak, and he casts the demon out, and the person who was mute now speaks. The event occurs, the people are amazed because, I mean, he cast the demon out. He just spoke the word, and the demon left, and the people are astounded at that, but at this point, this far into his ministry, The Pharisees, the scribes, the lawyers, the leaders are saying, well, he just does that by the prince of demons. What should be very clear to us is that the life and the ministry of Jesus, properly understood, draws an extremely bright line. And you need to stand on one side or the other of it. Jesus did not allow the people of his day, nor should we allow the people of our day, to say, well, I don't know, Jesus was a nice guy. I mean, he was a nice guy. He's a good teacher. He, he, he said good things. I mean, and that's it. He was just like a rabbi. He was just one of many rabbis. He was just one more teacher of the law. Uh, no, no, he wasn't. The things that Jesus did and the things that Jesus said and his reaction to the religious leaders of the day, you're a bunch of snakes and vipers, and and we'll get into that, by the way, not this week, but it's the next passage. He's going to really start going after them. Um, He forces them to stand on one side or the other. You have two opinions, legitimately, to have about Jesus, and you have to pick one or the other. Either Jesus is who he says he is, he's either the very son of God, God in the flesh, who came down here and who performed all of these miracles as God, or, that's, that's one option, or he is the most successful religious fraud in the history of mankind. I mean, his ability to deceive people is without measure. Those are your two choices. Because he either did the works that he did through the power of God, or he did them through the power of the devil. 
Here's what's interesting. You look at this account. You look at what's going on here. No one denies the works. No one denies what Jesus does. I mean, you you just look at the ministry. You just look at, pick any of the four Gospels and, and look at what has happened. Now, the Jews, as a nation, understood through the book of Moses, and they love Moses, by the way, that the world is a cursed place. They understood that. God has put a curse on the world. At the sin of Adam, God cursed the world. Sin and death have entered in here. The Messiah is going to come and have the power of God to reverse the curse. Jesus does everything necessary to convince anyone who wants to be convinced that he has the power to reverse the curse. I mean, his power over disease and illness is unmatched. It doesn't matter what it is, whether you have fevers, whether you have, and and we kind of look at fevers, well, I don't know, take a couple of aspirin, right? They didn't have aspirin. People got the fever and died right up 100 years ago. I mean, it's a death sentence. You got a fever. Oh, no. You're, you're, we don't know what we're going to do. We're just watch your fever go up and up and up and up. You, you go into hallucinations and, and you die. Jesus healed fevers. Jesus healed blindness. Jesus healed deafness. Jesus healed muteness. The lepers. Jesus actually touched the lepers. Whatever kind of disfigurement you had. Whether you had a, a bleeding problem, he could stop that. Whatever you had. Whatever kind of illness. Jesus Jesus. Healed it. The curse of illness. Jesus took care of it. Hunger. Not only did God feed the children of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus, he turned water into wine. He fed 5,000 with just a few fish and loaves. He fed another 7,000, again, with just a few fish and loaves. This is a reversal of the curse. This is free food. Free food. Why? Because, you know, it's just abundant. He reversed The curse of death. He stopped funeral processions. (laughs) Wait, hold on. Put his hand. Next thing you know, the dead person is getting up. He he went out and, and into people's homes where their child had died and brought the child back. He calls Lazarus out of the tomb. Roll the stone away. Hold on. Lazarus, come forth. And, of course, it's a good thing he said Lazarus. If he had just said come forth, you know... Everybody in the place would have shut up. No, just Lazarus. He controlled nature. He walks on water. He's able to still the storm and the waves. I mean, the storm is one thing. The wind can just stop. No, the waves. The place just goes dead still. He's able to transport himself and his disciples from the middle of the Sea of Galilee right to the shore instantly. And, and finally, though this is hardly an exhaustive list, he has the power over demons. The demonic world is clearly afflicting the nation of Israel at the time of the life of Jesus. They had exorcists. They had people who tried to cast out demons. You can read about them in Acts. They're not particularly successful at it, by the way. They have all kinds of procedures and rituals and things that they go through. Jesus, he just spoke. And the demons ran for their lives. There was no demon Jesus couldn't cast out. Every single demon Jesus ran across, he simply cast them out. In fact... The demons knew who Jesus was and often called him out. We know who you are, and he silenced them. And whenever he said the word, they fled. He he spoke, they obeyed. Who in the world can make demons obey them? Jesus. And he did. And if you're Jewish and you're watching all of this, there's only two conclusions. And, of course, we see. 
you either conclude that he is Lord, or you conclude that, well, I don't know, I guess he's doing it by the devil, which, of course, is a crazy thing to conclude. As to his teaching, Jesus would get up and teach. And if you just stop for just a moment and think about, what did Jesus teach? Sermon on the Mount. He gets up there in the Sermon on the Mount. He does this, and we could go to a number of places, but, okay, so he starts out with what? Blessed are those who are humble. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who are gentle. Blessed are those who are merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. And by the way, with our lives, we should be sure and glorify God with whatever we do. And do it not just outwardly, but from your heart. It's not just a matter of whether you actually murder your neighbor. Do you hate your neighbor? Even that's wrong. It's not a matter of whether you commit adultery with your neighbor's spouse. It's do you want to? The heart is what is wrong. And, and if you go out and you shouldn't have to be put under oath to tell the truth, let alone not only should you give false vows, we shouldn't have to put you under oath. Just speak the truth. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Oh, and by the way, forgive people. Forgive one another. Reconcile with one another. Don't lie to people. Reconcile with people. And if someone wrongs you, don't demand an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. Love your enemies. Do good to those that hate you. And by the way, when you go to exercise your religious disciplines, when you pray or when you fast or when you give, don't do this outwardly for everyone to look and go, oh, aren't you something? No, do them quietly behind the scenes. And your father, which sees in secret, he will reward you openly. When you get around to money, it's okay to have money, but don't let money have you. In fact, you're better off to lay up treasures in heaven than you are to lay up a bunch of treasures on earth. And don't be anxious. Don't worry. You can trust God. God's going to take care of you. Don't sit around being judgmental of one another. Love one another. Treat others like you would like to be treated. That's all. And watch out for people who are hypocritical. And on, by all means, please don't be hypocritical yourself. Build your house on the rock. Now, that's a nutshell, brief teaching. See anything in there, particularly, as it were, <clears throat> demonic? See anything in there, evil? See anything in there, deceptive even? Anything that's shockingly satanic? Uh, what I find shockingly satanic is that you can look at the life and teaching of Jesus and somehow think it's Satan. How in the world can anybody listen to what this guy says and look at the works that he's doing and go, oh, that's the devil? What, what kind of devil have you got? What devil would ever get up and preach that you should be humble and compassionate and forgiving and gracious and do for others what you would want done for yourself? This is the exact opposite of anything demonic. Jesus is not evil. Nothing he's doing is evil. When they get around to confronting Jesus, and they do for a while, they eventually stop. And the reason is because whenever you come to the Word of God, which at the time of Jesus, of course, would have only been the Old Testament, didn't matter what doctrine they brought up, what teaching they brought up, Jesus would open the Scriptures, his exegesis was flawless, and he would simply argue them into silence, and they couldn't answer him. I mean, they would think over and over and over, we finally got him. 
So should you pay taxes to Caesar or not? He can't possibly answer that. You can't, because if he says you should pay it, then the nation will hate him. And if he says you shouldn't pay it, then we'll get the Romans to go after him. And, of course, we all know the answer, right? He holds the coin up. Now, whose image is this? Caesar's. Render to Caesar's those things which bear Caesar's image, and render to God those things which bear God's image. Which, of course, they all knew, Genesis, and that God made us in his image. And they're stunned into silence. You, You didn't trap him at all. And this is how it goes with Jesus over and over and over. So when we come to this passage, when we come to this place, Jesus says once more, cast out a demon. The deaf man, uh, the mute man speaks. And they go, well, he does this by the, by the prince of demons. Jesus tries to reason with them. Really? If Satan is fighting against Satan, I mean, if I'm, if I'm operating on the power of Satan, then I'm undoing the very works of Satan. We all know what demon possession is here. We all know what it does. It makes the speaking mute. And so if I'm making the mute able to speak, how in the world am I possibly doing this by the power of Satan? This is not, Satan is the guy that made the guy not speak. It's like we hate you, so no matter what you do, it doesn't matter. We're going to attribute it to the devil, you know. It's as those things go, right? So Jesus is looking at them saying, Don't you understand? Satan was a strong man. He is a strong man. But someone stronger has shown up. Your Messiah. He doesn't actually say that, but he shouldn't have to actually say that. They should say that. But what he's saying is the Messiah, I have shown up. And guess what? I have the power to bind Satan. I have the power to take what is his. And he can't stop me. I plunder his kingdom. At will. That's what Jesus is saying. And instead of repenting, instead of falling on their face and worshiping Jesus as as Lord, they attribute what he does to the devil. How is this going to go? If you could talk to these guys and say to them, all right, where, where do you think this is going? How do you think this is going to play out? You've got the most Holy, righteous, loving, kind, gracious, powerful, miracle-working person in the history of the planet, and you have rejected him. Where exactly are you going to turn for salvation? And how do you think this is going to work out for your nation? How do you think this is going to work out for you guys? How do you think this is going to go? Do you think anything good is going to come from this? And Jesus is, that's what this passage is discussing. Jesus has just talked to them and said, if I by Satan cast out demons, then Satan is divided against himself. Satan is a strong man, I am a stronger man, and I have, in fact, overcome the kingdom of darkness. And as you will recall, in every instance we just went through, from illness to nature to, you know, the list. We just went through. All of those things were Jesus reversing the curse and showing that he is more powerful than the devil. So Jesus has this word to them of warning. And this is what he says. And this is why it's important, by the way, that I just went through all of that, because you could come to this passage, and this is a passage which is easy to kind of, I don't know, pull out of its context and just whatever it is you think about this passage. 
this, Jesus is giving this passage specifically to inform the nation what is going to happen to them if they don't repent. He says to them, look, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Therefore, it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and they live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. This passage tells us more about demon possession than we get from pretty much any other passage in all of the Bible. There is a parallel, a a similar passage to this back in Matthew chapter 12. If you want my view on demon possession and how that all goes and how I think this passage works into that, I would encourage you, uh, go on the church website, go to the sermons, look, you'll see the book of Matthew. It's, you know, a lot of sermons through Matthew. Matthew chapter 12. Verses 43 to 50. Go listen to that sermon. That will give you my complete view on what I think about demon possession. I will make a few observations because I, I think it's important. But if you want an in-depth discussion about it, go to the Matthew passage. So demon possession. Here's one thing to note about demon possession. First of all, it's obvious. It's a very obvious condition. No one ever brings someone to, one, to Jesus or one of the disciples and says, you know, I, I, my son is demon possessed and have him go, well, no, actually, that's not demon possession. That's something else. Demon possession is one of these really, really obvious things. Even the unsaved are able to identify those who are demon possessed. Second, to cast out a demon from someone is a first-class miracle. I mean first-class as in, I would no more try to cast a demon out of someone than give sight to the blind. The only people who are actually casting out demons and having it work are Jesus, the 12, and when he gives them the power, the 70. That's it. This is a first-class miracle. This is right in the same category as making the lame walk, the blind see, the, the, the deaf hear, the mute speak, To cast out demons is a first-class miracle. If I were, by the way, to run into someone who I thought was demon-possessed, and I'll explain to you in just a moment why I find that highly unlikely, but even if I did, my response to that would not be to rebuke the demon or some other something. Preach the gospel. That's the power of God unto salvation. I don't. Any more than if I met a blind person, I would somehow try to give them sight. That's not a gift. That's, God can give sight to the blind if he's so inclined. And guess what? God can give salvation to demon-possessed people. So preach the gospel. That is the power of God that we have today. What about the question of all this demon possession? What's interesting, if you look at the Old Testament, hardly anybody's demon-possessed. I mean, there might be a few here and there, but there's really no big demon possession in the Old Testament. If you look at, say, the book of Acts, after Jesus dies and resurrects, very few instances of demon possession there. And in fact, the, the place that's got one of the most biggest demonic centers is in Ephesus, great as the goddess Diana, and they burn all their magic books. And if you read Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, 
What he says to them about how to defeat Satan is put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. He doesn't say a word about demon possession or casting out demons or anything else. Demon possession, I think, occurred, I think it was a unique occurrence. I think that Satan is very determined to make sure that Jesus doesn't have the opportunity to present himself as the Messiah to the nation of Israel. And so he basically pulls out all the stops and makes every effort possible to inflict as much misery on this nation as he can and the demons possess as many people as they can in an attempt to distract and to, to get the nation to not accept Jesus as their Messiah. By the way, all the demons knew who Jesus was, remember? And they say who he is. Satan knows exactly who Jesus is. And while Jesus is alive on this earth, there is this huge effort on the part of Satan to try to thwart what Jesus is doing. All of this huge outbreak of demon possession in the nation of Israel is a manifestation of that. Of course, like everything the devil tries to do, Jesus simply turns it around and with his power to cast out demons, uses it to once again authenticate exactly who he is and you can look, Satan finally kills Jesus. You can imagine that Satan thinks this is the greatest thing ever. I finally did it. Of course, it was his greatest defeat. Jesus used his death to save us all. So Satan is trying to do what he's trying to do, and Jesus just simply takes it and uses it to further authenticate exactly who he is. So when we look at this passage, to understand this passage... You know, when the, when the unclean spirit is cast out and it, it passes through waterless places and goes around and it can't find any place to settle in, and, and it says, I, I'll go back and look at the place I was at, uh, finds it swept and clean and brings back seven more demons. Stay with me now. I, I, it's going to sound like I'm changing the subject, but I'm, I'm not. Lazarus. Lazarus was raised from the dead. Jesus called him out of the grave. Where is Lazarus right now? He's in heaven, right? I mean, we have every assurance that Lazarus is in heaven. Um, But he died, right? And Lazarus was resurrected, but he died. When Jesus went out and healed people, and by the way, did he heal people, did everyone he healed get saved, as we would use the term? Lazarus did, yeah, we know. But did everybody? Uh, no. The, remember the ten lepers? Only one of them actually came back. The other nine were healed. Only one actually came back. Jesus heals all kinds of people who don't get saved. If you look at the ministry of Jesus, if you look at what he does, he, he shows up, goes to Galilee, and if you just start reading the passages, just um, let me read a few of them for you. Matthew 4, 23. Jesus is going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. In all of Galilee. This is Matthew 4. I mean, we haven't even got to the Sermon on the Mount yet. Matthew 4, 24. The news about him went out into all Syria. And they brought to him all who were ill, taken with various diseases and pains and demoniacs and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them all. 
Matthew 9, Jesus goes into all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Then, without necessarily reading all these passages, you can go and read them. I mean, Jesus heals late into the night. He goes into some place, and as the sun is going down, the whole town turns out, and he heals them all. Then he appoints the 12, and they go out, and they do all kinds of healing. And then he appoints the 70, and they go out, and they do all kinds of healing. Jesus basically eradicates illness and paralysis and deformity and demon possession. I mean, he pretty much eradicates it in the whole Galilean region which, by the way, is a large region. Probably had a couple of million people in it. He just healed them all. He went to every town. And, and if he didn't go, he sent the 12 out. And, and Huge amounts of healing. All of these people healed. But what happens at the end of the ministry of Jesus? You're thinking, well, okay, everyone he healed got saved. You think so? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Because if you look at the, at, as Jesus leaves, what does he say? Woe unto you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. If the mighty works that have been done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. It will be more tolerable for Nineveh than for you folks. They repented at the preaching of Jonah, and a greater than Jonah is here. So even though all of these people... Matthew 19, one more time. Great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. I mean, everyone who was sick, he healed them. Everyone who came to him was sick, he healed them. So, is there a great spiritual awakening? Is there a great repentance? Is there a great turning? Is this bring about national repentance? Uh, not so much, right? Not, 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 not so much. No. Jesus leaves the Galilean ministry, with words of condemnation to them. Capernaum, you will not be lifted up to heaven. You will be cast down into hell. Why? You didn't repent. All these miracles, all this healing, all this stuff, all these things I did. You know what? There was no true repentance. You didn't actually turn your heart to God. So let me tell you what's going to happen to you. Let me tell you. I have cast demons out of all of you, those of you who have them. I have, I have healed the sick and raised the dead and, you know, all this list of things Jesus has done. And, and guess what? I have delivered you from the curse. I have delivered you from the power of Satan. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, guess what? I drove the unclean spirits out of you. But let me tell you something. If you don't repent, if you don't actually turn to God, they're going to come back. And yeah, yeah, the place is going to look good. The place is it's going to be swept and clean. Why? Because when Jesus casts a demon out, he casts them out. And they do go out. But if you don't repent, you just wait and see what's coming. Because what's going to happen is the demon is going to come back. He's going to look at the place and go, hey, the Spirit of God isn't dwelling here. And so he goes and gets seven more demons more wicked than himself. And the next thing you know, he only had one. Now he got eight. 
and the other seven are even worse than the first. And so the state of that person becomes worse than the first. Why? Because you didn't repent. You didn't turn to God. Yeah, I took care of you. I, 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 I took the nation and I swept it and cleaned it. I mean, he drove the money changers out of the temple. I, yeah, the whole list of things that Jesus and his disciples did took the nation to a place to be clean. But So he's warning them. This passage is a warning. If you don't repent, just wait. Now, we come to the next verse, 27. And you look at this and you think, this is a really interesting passage. Why in the world is Luke thinking, including this passage at this moment in this place? It says this. While Jesus was saying these things, I mean, he's having this exact conversation. One of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Now, in the Middle East, this is about as high a compliment as you could possibly pay to a woman. This is, this is basically saying, boy, oh boy, must your mother be proud of you. I am here to tell you, I, I wish my boy acted like you did. I mean, what a great thing. Well, every mother in Israel would wish that they had a son like you. This is what the mothers of Israel wished for. Oh, that I might have a son that could really influence the nation. Okay. That's interesting. Why does Luke have this in here? What point is Luke trying to make? There are two things that we might want to observe about this woman. One, it says that this is a woman in the crowd. Now, initially you might think, Oh, come on, don't, let's not make too much of that. Mm, before you say that, you want to actually look in the Gospels and start looking at how the crowd is described. Because the crowd, the ochlos, the, the throng of people, sometimes referred to as a mob, a crowd can become a mob, same word, this group of people, they are not the disciples. Let me show you some passages that make that very clear. Matthew 5.1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up into the mountain. This is the Sermon on the Mount. He sat down and his disciples came to him. You start with the crowd, then you have the disciples. Matthew 13.34. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables. And he didn't speak to them without a parable, the crowds. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds, went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares. And of course he does. You have the crowds, to whom he speaks to parables, and he doesn't explain it to them, that it might be fulfilled what what the prophet said. Seeing they will not see, and hearing they will not hear. That's the crowds. But the disciples, he explains it to. Luke 9, 
just a few chapters back. The day was ending, and the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away, that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. We're in a desolate place. There's us. We're the disciples. There's them. They're the crowd. So the crowd is a distinctly different group of people than the disciples. You'll see that even more shortly. We'll get to verse 29, not this morning, but let me read it to you. The crowds are increasing. And what did he say? This generation is a wicked generation. Who's he said that to? The crowds. He doesn't say that to his disciples. He says it to the crowd. So, this woman calls out is not a disciple. It doesn't say, and one of the disciples said, this is a woman who is a member of the crowd. And what does she call out? She says, wow, is your mother a lucky woman? Okay. That's an interesting observation. Exactly what does that have to do with anything? And this brings us to the second thing we need to see to understand why Luke includes this and what's going on here. Did Jesus become the Son of God, leave heaven, be born in a manger, live this life that he's lived for the last three and almost half years, because he's just a few weeks away from the cross? I mean, did he come down here and become a man and cure illness and defeat the devil and do all of the great things that he did so that his mom would be proud of him. Is that what Jesus did? Is that why he's here? He's here to make his mom proud. Now, I'm not denying that Jesus wouldn't want to make his mom proud, and I'm sure he did. And Mary certainly holds a a unique place as the birth mother of the Son of God, but not like you'd think. What's happened here is that this woman is seemingly, we we would assume, it would be natural and normal in Israel for virtually every woman to get married and have children. So there's every reason to think this is a woman who was married with kids. I mean, that was just, that was standard. So she's a mom. And what is she doing? Well, she's doing the, well, this is what this means to me, interpretation of Scripture. She's doing the, this is what Jesus' life means to me. I mean, boy, I'm a mom, and I'm here to tell you, I wish I had a son like you. Is that going to get you to heaven? Is that the right relation? Is that the right response to have to the life and ministry of Jesus? Is that what Jesus is looking for? Let's get everybody out here to love their mom more. I mean, is that what Jesus came for? Because that's what she's saying. And in a, it might initially appear that she's saying a great compliment about Jesus. And of course she is. But what she's really doing is drawing attention away from Jesus and putting it on his mother. Let's talk about your mother for a moment. Boy, she must be happy to have you. Okay, is Jesus' mom really the issue here? Is, did Jesus come to earth to promote his mom? And the answer, of course, to that is no, he didn't, which is why he looks at the woman and answers. Now, I mean, if you said to me, boy, you, your mom must really be proud of you. You know, my answer is probably going to be some version of, well, you're very kind to say that. And, and um, yeah, you know, my mom's, my mom's a great lady. And, and you know what I mean? Some, some, something like that, right? 
Is that what Jesus says? <laughs> nope. What he looks at her and says is, uh, on the contrary. That is, you're trying to bring attention to my mother. We need to get to the contrary of that. We need to get to the opposite of that. We need to turn away from your trying to direct focus on my mother, and we need to get it on where it belongs. The issue here is not my mom. The issue here is not my relationship with my mother. The issue here is not how great a lady she was. The issue is this. Blessed is not my mom. The question is not how blessed, which is what the lady says. Blessed is the woman that bore you. He said, you want blessing? Let me tell you about blessing. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. That's what matters. So the reason that this passage is included in here is because we're looking at two different reactions, two different responses to the ministry of Jesus. We've got the, we've got the religious leaders over here saying, he's doing it by the devil. We've got a woman who's not saying he's doing it by the devil, but she's as completely oblivious and on her way to hell as the guys who attributed to the devil. She's just over here in religious religiosity. She's just a good Jewish mom who's thinking that Jesus is a good Jewish boy, and she's talking about how good his Jewish mother must be and feel about having him as a son. Okay, that's all kind of interesting. It has nothing to do with anything. If you want to get the true blessing that matters, you need to hear the word of God and observe it, which, of course, is exactly what Jesus has been doing nothing for the last three and a half years, trying to get these people, will you please unplug your ears and listen? And, of course, hearing they don't hear and seeing they don't see, and which is why he's going to go on, as I just read in verse 29, which we'll get to next week, it's like, basically, what is wrong with you people? Why aren't you paying attention here? But they're not. They're not. And the focus of the ministry of Jesus is on the word of God and on being obedient to it. Why? Because that is what matters. Not that Jesus was a great guy and his mom was really proud of him, Interesting observations, those those may be. What matters is, are you paying attention to the word of God, and are you obedient to it? That's what matters. You're not going to get anywhere with God, and you're not going to spend eternity in heaven with God, and you're not going to be part of the kingdom of God if you just keep focusing on the wrong thing. And focusing on Jesus' relationship with his mother is the wrong thing. Don't look at how blessed my mother is. You need the blessing. And here's how you get it. You don't have to be my mother to get this blessing. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. This is a blessing that everyone can get. This woman can get. The people who are accusing him of doing it by Satan can get it. Every single person today, you can still get the blessing of God. Hear the word of God and observe it. And the blessing of God can be on you too. Salvation is available to everyone. This is the message that Jesus is putting forward. And don't get distracted. They tried to distract by the devil. This woman is complimentary, but it's just as distracting. It's still turning the focus over to the wrong thing. So what we're seeing here are two reactions to the life of Jesus. Both of them are incorrect. Both of them are not going to get you to heaven. We need to observe the word of God, hear the word of God, and do it. That's what 
matters. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for the Gospels, thankful for the teaching that it gives. May we not get distracted. May we not get looking at things which are not essential. Start looking at just someplace besides the main thing. Let us have the wisdom to know how to make the main thing the main thing. May we know your word, understand it, and live it. May the words of Jesus sink into our hearts and minds as well. May we be people who long to know your word, to understand your word, to love your word, and to obey your word. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you give it to us. Thank you that you give us your spirit. Thank you that we have an enormously great opportunity to be your servants. Thank you for each of the servants in this assembly. Thank you, Lord, that we love you and serve you, and may we share, share the truth to a lost and dying world that desperately needs it. Send us your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.